Section 15 of The Science History of the Universe, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Science History of the Universe, Volume 5. Edited by Francis Rolt Wheeler. Biology, Chapter 10 Morphology and Embryology, Part 1. The facts of biology, which admit of adequate explanation only in connection with the theory of descent, are grouped by Romains and other writers on organic evolution under the heads of morphology, embryology, classification, paleontology, distribution, and domestication. In all these lines, the facts are drawn together by a strong thread of unity. There are numberless similarities and correlations and surprising uniformities. The great variety of life as exhibited in the countless species of plants and animals has been referred to, and yet, great as this variety is, there are, after all, only a few types of structure among all animals and plants, some three or four or eight or ten general modes of development, and all the rest are modifications from these few types. It is, moreover, true that all living forms are but series of modifications and extensions of one single plan of structure. All have the same ultimate substance, the mysterious semi-fluid network of protoplasm, which is, so far as is known, the physical basis of all life, and the equally mysterious nuclear substance, or chromatin, which in some fashion presides over all the movements of the protoplasm and is the physical basis of the phenomena of heredity. The same laws of heredity, variability, and of response to outside stimulus hold in all parts of the organic world. All organisms have the same need of reproduction. All are forced to make concession after concession to their surroundings, and in these concessions all progress in life consists. And at last, each organism, or each alliance of organisms, must come to the greatest concession of all, which is called death. The unity in life, then, is not less a fact than is life's great diversity. Whatever emphasis is laid upon the diversity of life, the essential unity of all organisms must not be forgotten. An examination of the facts in each of the lines of evidence makes it clear that the only reasonable explanation for the existence of a fundamental unity in organic life is the theory of descent, i.e. that similarities are due to blood relationship and that differences come from adaptive modifications. The facts adduced from morphology, being the result of researches into the structure of adult animals and plants, lead to a preview of certain principles of adaptation necessary for their interpretation. First, it must be noted that some structures are not non-adaptive, that is, do not change to fit changed habits or conditions of life. Such structures or organs are most often found internally. For illustration, a change in the locomotive habit of a bird from that of flying to that of an ostrich is associated with an adaptive modification of locomotor structures, legs, and wings, but not in any striking way is there change in the internal organs. Internal organs may persist unchanged, 
and hence they offer good guides to classification. On the other hand, external structures are likely to undergo adaptation when habits or conditions of life change. Hence, as Jordan has said, the inside of an animal tells the real history of its ancestry. The outside tells us only where its ancestors have been. In the second place, it must be noted that adaptations to similar conditions may result in superficial resemblances. For example, there is a superficial resemblance between the wing of an insect and the wing of a bird, both adaptations to an aerial environment, between the heart of an insect and the heart of a vertebrate animal, both adaptations for pumping blood, between the fin of a fish and the paddle of a whale, both adaptive swimming organs. Yet the resemblance in these cases does not go deeper than the surface. It is one of function only. All such cases of resemblance in function, but not in detailed plan of structure, are called analogies, and mean nothing more than similarity of environment. Turning to more fundamental resemblances, such as the wing of a bat and the wing of a bird, careful study shows detailed internal as well as external similarities of structure. Such cases are homologies. On the one hand, then, are found structures which are perfectly analogous and yet in no way homologous. Totally different structures are modified to perform the same functions. On the other hand are found structures which are perfectly homologous and yet in no way analogous. The structural elements remain, but are profoundly modified to perform totally different functions. Homology thus means identity of structure, which is the result of identity of parentage. It is the stamp of heredity. It means blood relationship. These principles of homology are essential to a correct interpretation of the facts of morphology. The most striking fact of similar structure among plants and among animals is the existence of a common general plan in any group. Since backboned animals are best known to most readers, they may be taken as an illustration. All vertebrate animals, and none other, says Le Conte, have an internal jointed skeleton worked by muscles on the outside. The relation of skeleton and muscle in arthropods is exactly the reverse. In all vertebrates, and in none other, the axis of this skeleton is a jointed backbone, vertebral column, enclosing and protecting the nervous centers, cerebrospinal axis. These, therefore, may well be called backboned animals. All vertebrates, and none other, have a number of their anterior vertebral joints enlarged and consolidated into a box to form the skull in order to enclose and protect a similar enlargement of the nervous center, viz. the brain, and also, usually, but not always, a number of posterior joints enlarged and consolidated to form the pelvis to serve as a firm support to the hind limbs. All vertebrates, and none other, have two cavities, enclosed and protected by the skeleton, viz. the neural cavity above and the visceral or body cavity below the vertebral column. All vertebrates, with few exceptions and no other animals, 
have two and only two pair of limbs the exceptions are of two kinds viz a some lowest fishes amphioxes and lampreys which probably represent the vertebrate condition before limbs were acquired and b degenerate forms like snakes and some lizards which have lost their limbs by disuse so much concerns the general plan of skeletal structures and is strongly suggestive of in fact it is inexplicable without common origin but much more remains which is not only suggestive but demonstrative of such origin by extensive comparison in the taxonomic and ontogenic series the whole vertebrate structure in all its details in different animals may be shown to be modifications one of another sometimes a piece is enlarged sometimes diminished or even becomes obsolete sometimes several pieces are consolidated into one but in spite of all these obscurations corresponding parts usually may be made out these remarkable similarities in the common general plan alone are convincing evidences of descent but attention may be called to a like similarity extending to the details of structure for example the wings of a bat a mammal a bird and a fossil flying reptile all show the same bones adaptively modified a series of either fore or hind limbs of a mammal with one toe horse two toes sheep four toes hog and five toes dog exhibit a remarkable series of homologies pointing to a five-toed ancestor and any other series of organs of vertebrates would give the same evidence of fundamental resemblances homologies for such a series of facts the reader must be referred to special books like wiedersheim's comparative anatomy of the vertebrates romaine's darwin and after darwin and lecante's evolution the existence of great similarities in vertebrate structure is not always fully recognized to the superficial observer the bodies of animals of different classes seem to differ fundamentally in plan to be entirely different machines made each for its own purposes at once out of hand extensive comparison on the contrary shows them to be the same although the essential identity is obscured by adaptive modifications the simplest in fact the only scientific explanation of the phenomena of vertebrate structure is the idea of a primal vertebrate modified more and more through successive generations by the necessities of different modes of life see then the difference between man's mode of working and nature's a man having made a steam engine and desiring to use it for a different purpose from that for which it was first designed and used will nearly always be compelled to add new parts not contemplated in the original machine nature rarely makes new parts never if she can avoid it but on the contrary adapts an old part to the new function it is as if nature were not free to use any and every device to accomplish her end but were conditioned by her own plans of structure as indeed she must be according to the derivation theory thus in the fin of a fish the forepaw of a reptile or a mammal the wing of a bird and the arm and hand of a man is found the same part 
variously modified for many purposes. Another striking class of the facts of morphology, which admit of scientific explanation only along the line of homology, are the thousands of cases of rudimentary or vestigial structures to be found. Throughout both the animal and vegetable kingdoms, dwarfed and useless representatives of organs are constantly met with, which, in other and allied kinds of animals and plants, are of large size and functional utility. Thus, for instance, the unborn whale has rudimentary teeth, which are never destined to cut the gums, and throughout its life this animal retains, in a similarly rudimentary condition, a number of organs which never could have been of use to any kind of creature save a terrestrial quadruped. Other well-known examples among vertebrates are vestiges of hind limbs in certain snakes, reduced wings in the apteryx and ostriches, rudiments of eyes in cave fishes, hind limbs beneath the skin of whales, the vermiform appendix in man, as well as useless muscles to move the ears and the skin, and also a very much reduced hairy covering over the surface of the body. Wiedersheim has recorded more than 180 such structural reminiscences in man. Now, rudimentary organs of this kind are of such frequent occurrence that almost every species of organism presents one or more of them, usually, indeed, a considerable number. How, then, are they to be accounted for? Of course, the theory of descent with adaptive modification has a simple answer to supply, namely, that when from changed conditions of life an organ which was previously useful becomes useless, it will be suffered to dwindle away in successive generations under the influence of certain natural causes. On the other hand, the theory of special creation can only maintain that these rudiments are formed for the sake of adhering to an ideal type. Now, here again, the former theory appears to be triumphant over the latter, says Romains, for without waiting to dispute the wisdom of making dwarfed and useless structures merely for the whimsical motive assigned, surely, if such a method were adopted in so many cases, we should expect that in consistency it would be adopted in all cases. This reasonable expectation, however, is far from being realized. In numberless cases, such as that of the forelimbs of serpents, no vestige of a rudiment is present. But the vacillating policy in the matter of rudiments does not end here, for it is shown in a still more aggravated form, where, within the limits of the same natural group of organisms, a rudiment is sometimes present and sometimes absent. For instance, although in nearly all the numerous species of snakes there are no vestiges of limbs, in the python we find very tiny rudiments of the hind limbs. Now, is it a worthy conception of deity that, while neglecting to maintain his unity of ideal in the case of nearly all the numerous species of snakes, he should have added a tiny rudiment in the case of the python, and even in that case, should have maintained his ideal very inefficiently, inasmuch as only two limbs instead of four are represented? Convincing, as are the evidences of descent recorded in the structure of plants and animals, 
these evidences have been in the past thirty years somewhat overshadowed by the far more surprising evidences of descent discovered in the development of plant and animal embryos a dozen volumes would be necessary to present the mass of embryological evidence but a few salient facts will illustrate the kind of evidence to be deduced from embryology most remarkable of all the principles which have been discovered by embryologists is the recapitulation doctrine which briefly stated is that individual development ontogeny recapitulates ancestral history phylogeny illustrations quoted from the works of romains and leconte will make this principle clear it is an observable fact says romains that there is often a close correspondence between developmental changes as revealed by any chronological series of fossils which may happen to have been preserved and developmental changes which may be observed during the life history of now existing individuals belonging to the same group of animals for instance the successive development of prongs in the horns of deer-like animals which is so clearly shown in the geological history of this tribe is closely reproduced in the life history of existing deer or in other words the antlers of an existing deer furnish in their development a kind of resume or recapitulation of the successive phases whereby the primitive horn was gradually superseded by horns presenting a greater and greater number of prongs in successive species of extinct deer now it must be obvious that such a recapitulation in the life history of an existing animal of developmental changes successively distinctive of sundry allied though now extinct species speaks strongly in favor of evolution for as it is of the essence of this theory that new forms arise from older forms by way of hereditary descent we should antecedently expect if the theory is true that the phases of development presented by the individual organism would follow in their main outlines those phases of development through which their long line of ancestors had passed the only alternative view is that as species of deer for instance were separately created additional prongs were successively added to their antlers and yet that in order to be so added to successive species every individual deer belonging to later species was required to repeat in his own lifetime the process of successive additions which had previously taken place in a remote series of extinct species now i do not deny that this view is a possible view but i do deny that it is a probable one according to the evolutionary interpretation of such facts we can see a very good reason why the life history of the individual is thus a condensed resume of the life history of its ancestral species but according to the opposite view no reason can be assigned why such should be the case it is well known likewise comments leconte that the embryo or larva of a frog or toad when first hatched is a legless tail-swimming water-breathing gill-breathing animal it is essentially a fish and would be so classed if it remained in this condition the fish retains permanently this form but the frog passes on next it forms first one pair and then another pair of legs and meanwhile 
it begins to breathe also by lungs at this stage it breathes equally by lungs and by gills i e both air and water now the lower forms of amphibians such as cirridon menobronchus siren etc retain permanently this form and are therefore called perennibranchs but the frog still passes on then the gills gradually dry up as the lungs develop and they now breathe wholly by lungs but still retain the tail now this is the permanent mature condition of many amphibians such as the triton the salamander etc which are therefore called caducibranchs but the frog still passes on finally it loses the tail or rather its tail is absorbed and its material used in further development and it becomes a perfect frog the highest order anura of this class thus then in ontogeny the fish goes no further than the fish stages the perennibranch passes through the fish stage to the perennibranch amphibian the caducibranch takes first the fish form then the perennibranch form and finally the caducibranch form but goes no further last the anura takes first the fish form then that of the perennibranch then that of the caducibranch and finally becomes anura now this is undoubtedly the order of succession of forms in geological times i e in the phylogenic series fishes first appeared in the devonian and upper silurian in very reptilian or rather amphibian forms then in the carboniferous fishes still continuing there appeared the lowest i e most fish-like forms of amphibians these were undoubtedly perennibranchs in the permian and triassic higher forms appeared which were certainly caducibranch finally only in the tertiary so far as we yet know do the highest form anura appear the general similarity of the three series is complete end of section 15 recording by linda johnson